A poet once wrote, the universe is made of stories, not of atoms. This is not a denial of science. Certainly, the poet would acknowledge that with the right equipment, we can see atoms, the smallest observable element of ordinary matter. Instead, what I think the poet means is that the universe is made of atoms, but atoms were made for stories. The atomic elements of the universe are charged up and animated to tell a story. The great scientist, who the Hebrew people called Elohim, is a storyteller. Christmas is a unique time of the year when the buzzing particles that make up the universe and us speed faster than normal. You can feel it. But there are pauses in the moments in the season of Advent. When the buzzing particles slow to a hum, quiet enough to hear a story. If you don't believe me, I ask where you were on Thursday night or some other time this weekend. You might have been with me and the rest of the galaxy watching Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Don't worry, no spoilers here for those who haven't seen it yet. But on Thursday, I was so excited that I snuck around the office with a lightsaber, trying to use the force on my coworkers. <laughs> and in between moments of writing this sermon, I explored Star Wars fan pages and indulged myself in theories about Emperor Snoke's origin and the identity of Rey's parents. And then upon arriving, finally, to the theater, more than an hour before the trailers began, I tested my guesses with other moviegoers. Afterwards, I thought about this cultural phenomena and why we get so involved in stories. I don't even know how to calculate the totality of atoms that have gone into this film. The hours each name that scrolled down the list of credits invested, the number of people gathered in theaters around the world, they're saying 220 million in ticket sales for opening weekend. On top of that, think of the numbers of overpriced and oversalted popcorn and the gallons of soda sold. We live to tell stories and to be told stories. We shape them and they shape us. No one knew this better than Israel. Their identity was wrapped up in two big stories, creation and exodus. These were like the tales you will tell at the dinner table this Christmas, or like bedtime stories. I can hear the little Hebrew children say, Mama, tell us again how the stars got here and who the first people were. And she starts, in the beginning, Elohim made the heavens and the earth. Much of the Old Testament is narrative and poetry. And the re relationship between God and Israel was in story terms. A covenant which we often think of as a legal document is in one sense, but first, as is the case in all covenants of the ancient Near East, covenants are stories, 
articulations of relationships. It's as if God, who initiated the covenant with humanity, said, I am entering into a story with you. My story is now your story. Your story is now my story. God talked about himself in a narrative way to the Israelites. He said, remember, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He said this over and over again. God chose story because it's what the universe is made of. Or should I say it's what he made the universe for. And he chose story because stories change the world. Stories shape us. We become the stories we tell. And so God gave Israel a story that when lived out and told over and over again would make them into the people of God. Story is still the way God shapes us. And so let's lean into the story we find in Matthew chapter 2. For the first century Jew, Matthew's account of Jesus' birth is bursting with stories they already know. Prophecies of the Messiah, connections to key historical elements, important figures. And Matthew wanted them to catch all of it, especially the hints of creation and exodus. The gospel begins with the words, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, or read literally, book of origin, book of Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. Tying this story to the creation narrative. The original hearers would have caught that in Jesus, God is recreating the world. But the most significant parallel is the one with the Exodus story. The plot movements of our passage echo the plot movements of the most defining event in Israel's history thus far, the account of God rescuing them from from slavery in Egypt. Both the original story and this one are birth stories of one who would come to rescue his people. Both include a murderous king who is willing to kill innocent children to remove a threat to his throne and kingdom. In both, that plan is disrupted while a child is hidden and preserved. In the original, it was Pharaoh and Moses. In this version, Herod plays the role of Pharaoh 2.0 and Jesus is Moses 2.0. What Matthew wants his listeners to hear is that this is a new exodus, a new story that will shape them and the whole world. And how do we know this new exodus has universal implications? Because the message comes from an unlikely place, the Magi. Who were these Foreign travelers who, some, who we sometimes call magi, sometimes kings, sometimes wise men. Were they pagan priests, astrologers, magicians? Depending on which scholar you ask, the visitors who paid homage to Jesus could have been like this picture. There's your wizards. Or how about this, three kings. 
Aslan, Simba, and Mufasa. Or how about three wise men? Doctor Who, Sherlock, and Ken Skank. (laughs) I'm not sure if we'll get to the bottom of it, but I think we have a pretty good idea what the original listeners heard when Matthew introduces the Magi. They heard Gentiles. The first to pay homage to the newborn baby in the Gospel of Matthew were Gentiles. The proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah to Israel is given by the Gentiles. While the Jewish people are hearing echoes of a story they know so well, God is telling them a new one, and he allows the Magi, the outsiders, to narrate how big it is. So this morning, we'll also let the Magi guide us. In order to follow them, let's summarize the story You might need it since I got you thinking about Star Wars. The Magi from their home in the east follow a star to Jerusalem, seeking a newborn king of the Jews. Hearing this, Herod the Great gathered the high priests and scribes and intercepted the Magi, grasping for information on the rumored threat to his throne. He then promises to go and worship Jesus too, pointing the Magi in the direction of Bethlehem. He asked them to return with the exact location of the baby. Led by the star, the Magi find the child and his mother, Mary, and they are overjoyed. Bowing down before the child, they give him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But before they're about to return to Jerusalem, they have a dream which allows them to recognize the murderous king's deception and return home by another route. If you didn't notice, the Magi's journey takes them to two different kings, one in Jerusalem, one in Bethlehem. The existing king of the Jews, Herod, and the prophesied newborn king of the Jews, Jesus. The Magi find themselves in tension between these two different kings, revealing two different kinds of kingdoms, two different kinds of power. One will call the way of Herod and the other the way of Jesus. What sort of power do we find in Herod? Herod is the kind of guy we already know from the passage that is paranoid of losing the throne and willing to do whatever it takes to protect his power, his privilege, and his place. People were a means to an end for Herod, and if they didn't fit his means, they met their end. Historians tell us that he, suspecting infidelity, had his wife killed, He also had his uncle put to death, his mother-in-law, and three of his sons. This is why Caesar Augustus uttered the saying, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Herod is also the kind of guy who is obsessed over his legacy and his funeral. He wanted to be legendary, so he had dirt and rock moved and piled onto an existing hill, so he can make a mountainous, extravagant burial tomb for himself 
that could be seen for miles for years to come. If that's not enough, suspecting that there would be widespread rejoicing over his death, he ordered the arrest of Jewish elders from the villages all across Palestine. They were to be jailed in the racetrack he built in Jericho, where they would wait and then be executed as soon as Herod died, ensuring that people would cry at his funeral. Fortunately, his officials never carried out his orders. This is the first king the Magi visit, but they visit another. You can tell a lot about a king by his kingdom. This second king's reign is not found in the cultural center, but in a peasant town. His throne is a feeding trough. Outside of the Magi, his company is not royal. They're not powerful, but lowly. Consider for a moment the characters the gospel writers place around the manger. Think of your nativity set at home, or even a time when you enacted the story yourself. In junior high, my youth group put on a live nativity. In a neighboring town to the one I grew up in, there was a park with a sort of mini version of the Marion Walkway of Lights that everyone drove through a couple times each Christmas season. And as good Christians, we couldn't let society slip into the godless flickering of glowing Santas, elves, reindeer, gingerbread houses, John Deere tractors, dinosaurs, or any other bright, welded shape distracting people from the real meaning of Christmas. So we set up a live nativity outside in the December cold. Of this idea, I was game for two reasons. One, as a junior high boy, I'd go along with anything that advertised hot chocolate and cookies. It didn't take much. But secondly, my parents were youth sponsors. So I didn't really have a choice. Now there's a lot of sympathy these days for pastor's kids, PKs we call them, but let me tell you about the life of a youth sponsor kid, YSKs. Sure, as a PK, you get dragged along to every church event, you stack chairs, hand out bulletins, you're under a microscope of sorts, there's a lot of pressure, I get it. But here's the difference between being a PK and, and a YSK. When you're a pastor's kid and, and your mom or dad do something awkward or embarrassing, you can justify it. This is just something God wants them to do. He or she is called. So you can shrug it off as a have to or even blame God if you want. But as youth sponsor kids, you have to face the reality that your parent or parents signed up for this because they wanted to. You can't blame God when they do something embarrassing for the Lord, say like dance in public at a Christian concert or talk about Jesus in front of your friends or come up with youth group games that involve baby diapers and candy bars. So anyway, I was in the live nativity because I really didn't have a choice. But hot chocolate was a good consolation prize. When we arrived to the park, we got our assignments. To my astonishment and joy, I was asked to be a shepherd, which meant one thing to me. I would get a large curved stick to hold. This was the youth sponsor's first big mistake and a law of youth ministry that I have tried to live by ever since. <laughs> Don't give junior hires anything that resembles a projectile or sword, especially if you're going to ask them to do something spiritual or serious for a long amount of time. Say, stand in a stable with other junior hires. 
It did not take long for me to test out this weapon, using the staff to knock off a magi's crown, nudge over the holy couple, or hook the baby Jesus. You can see where this is going. I got kicked out of a live nativity, sent to community center exile without hot chocolate. Okay, I think they still let me have hot chocolate. But here's the reality that I've since reflected on. I wasn't really a troublemaker junior higher. Okay, I was. But I was also a budding, young, biblical scholar. For the scenes surrounding the manger were not as neat and organized as we picture or place on our mantles or enact in living nativities. The company of Jesus was lowly. In a way, I was playing an authentic shepherd, for they were likely of ill repute and for sure low of status. They would get kicked out or not even invited to most kingdoms, but not Jesus' kingdom. He surrounds himself with the lowly, a word given to us by his mother in the biblical narrative. You heard it earlier. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty, Mary sang. Jesus from the start was building a kingdom with the powerless. Mary, lowly in sense of age, lineage, and rumor. The Magi as outsiders and antagonists to Herod. The shepherds in reputation, status, and occupation. This is a constant theme in Jesus' life and ministry. Eating with tax collectors, touching lepers, calling fishermen, discipling women. Even in his death, he invites a thief to join his kingdom. What kind of a king do the, main, do the magi find in the manger? One that welcomes the teenager, the fearful, the refugee family, the wanderer, the foreigner, the overlooked, the vulnerable, the ill repute, the outsider. The way of Jesus is a reversal of the way of Herod. The way of Herod is grasping. The way of Jesus is receiving. The way of Herod is protecting. The way of Jesus is vulnerability. The way of Herod is controlling. The way of Jesus is releasing. The way of Herod is forcing. The way of Jesus is waiting. The way of Herod is hoarding. The way of Jesus is giving away. These are the two kings the Magi visit. But notice, they only declare one, and they only worship one. Let's pause here and recognize the ambiguity here in the passage. Though often we translate the action of the Magi as worship, the Greek word here meaning venerate might simply refer to the automatic response anyone would perform before royalty in this time in history. We might even assume that the Magi venerated Herod the Great when they bumped into him in Jerusalem. However, Matthew, who is telling a story in a particular way, intentionally including certain details while leaving others out, doesn't mention that the Magi venerate King Herod. He does, however, emphasize that the Magi bowed before Jesus. 
Perhaps Matthew wants to tell a story where the Magi venerate one king and not the other. But even if their worship was not authentic, Matthew, through the Magi, is pointing out the authentic king and laying a pathway for his original audience and for us to worship Jesus. One more important consideration. This story, remember, is a kind of exodus. And exodus stories are not only about arriving, they're also about leaving. There's an Egypt to leave here, and it's represented by the way of Herod. To see this, we need to map the Magi's journey. From the east, they stop by Jerusalem first, on their way to Bethlehem. But they go home a different way. After being warned in a dream not to return to Jerusalem and King Herod, it says they return to their country by another route. So they came through the center of power, saw information from the powerful, made arrangements with the powerful, but after finding the manger and having a dream, are set off course on another route. In doing so, the Magi lead us not only to Bethlehem, but out of Jerusalem, in the way of Jesus and out of the way of Herod. To fully grasp, grasp this, we must look at one more group of characters in the passage. The Jewish chief priests and the scribes of the people. Remember, these are the ones Herod gathers together seeking information on the location of the child. And they freely interpret the scriptures for him and point him in the direction of Bethlehem without going there themselves, by the way. Now their cooperation with Herod the Great doesn't mean they intend to help find and eliminate the child. They may not be conspirators in this scene, but the arc of all the synoptic gospels have the Sadducees complicit with Rome. Nearly every time Matthew, Mark, or Luke talk about Jerusalem, it is a foreshadowing of the eventual death of Jesus by the hands of the Romans in partnership with the Jewish chief priests, elders, and scribes. There's an entanglement with power and a tendency to look the other way when the king who rebuilt their temple enacts policies that devastate the common people. Do you see the distance between Herod's words and his actions? As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him, he says, before launching a murderous assault on the poorest of poor in his kingdom. Since the very first one, politicians have been saying Merry Christmas with their lips while enacting policies that oppress the powerless, the very ones to whom Christ first came. And sadly, since the very first one, people of the scriptures have been enamored with visions and versions of Herod, entangled and complicit, sometimes supporting, sometimes looking the other way in exchange for a small piece of power for ourselves. Leaders who govern in the way of Herod are interested in Jesus and his followers only to leverage them for their own purposes. The way of Herod is the promise of power, but it's a trap, a lie, 
For what profits Christians if we gain the whole world but forfeit our soul? We must not be a people who sell our souls for the promise of power, but instead a people who live by a power of promise. Our hope is not found in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. It's not in a particular nation or political party and their power, but in a manger and its promises. Our hope is in Jesus alone, and alone Jesus can give us hope. How do we tap into this other kind of power? What does it look like to live in the way of Jesus? What we find in Matthew 2 is unexpected. The way of Jesus is in vulnerability. In our story, the good news not only comes to the vulnerable, the good news comes in vulnerability. This is the surprise of the Messiah. Last week, Steve introduced us to the slowness of the manger. This week, we find the weakness of the manger. The king who comes as a baby reveals a power in weakness. And don't be mistaken, Jesus doesn't grow out of this. He leads in the power of weakness as a servant unto his death. Here's a realization I made in studying this passage. As strikingly opposite Herod and Jesus are, they have one thing in common. They're vulnerable. Think about it. Herod's erratic, arrogant, and aggressive behavior is how he deals with his vulnerability. Herod hid his vulnerability from others. He tried to escape it. He overcompensated for it. He found it in others and exploited it. To be human is to be vulnerable. And what we do with our vulnerability determines what kind of humans we will be and what we do with the power that is given to us. God became human, vulnerable, and dwelt among us. In doing so, Jesus doesn't just show us what God is like. He shows us what it's like to be human. Jesus shows us what to do with our vulnerability. In short, he teaches us a different kind of power. And we can sum it up like this. The power we have is not grasped. It is received. The power we have is not for us to keep, but to give away. We can think of the way of Herod as a fist and the way of Jesus as an open hand. Most of us are appalled by Herod the Great. This story that includes thousands of children being murdered is saddening to say the least. We think to ourselves, there's no way I am like that. Of course. Herod is an extreme picture of his kind of power. But the truth is, all of us are somewhere on the spectrum of Herod and Jesus. We are a paradox of grasping and keeping and receiving and giving away. Each of us have one clenched fist and one open hand. This morning I want to ask you to clench your fists. Go ahead. And I want you to clench them hard. 
This is grasping and keeping. Let me ask you what this does to you. What's, what's going on inside of you when you hold your hands like this? Do you start to feel anxious? Does it make you edgy? Does it draw you into anything that you might be angry about? Still holding it? Some of you are cheating. Go ahead and release it if you haven't. Now how do you feel? Do you feel relief? Maybe even a little shaky and exposed after clenching so long? This is receiving. This is giving away. As we close this morning, I want to ask you again to, to clench your fist, but just in form, okay? I don't want anybody passing out or, or hurting themselves. So just in form, you don't have to squeeze very hard. As we do this, I want us to ask a series of questions. One or more of these you might resonate more with than the others. Just toss them away if that's the case and, and focus in on the ones that resonate with you. Let me ask you in this season, where do I feel most vulnerable and lonely? It may take you a moment to realize this because like Herod, we try to hide it. We cover it up. Is there a vulnerability or a sense of lowliness in you this season? If so, let me ask you, what are you doing with your vulnerability? Has your vulnerability caused you to grasp for power? Has your vulnerability caused you to misplace trust in a promise of power? Is there any bit of Herod in you that needs by the grace of God to be dethroned today? And for these last two, I ask you to simply open your hands up. Is there anyone in your life that comes to mind that you can empower in your workplace, in your home, in school? And then let me ask you, what is the next step you can take to do that this week? Just as the only way to hold a baby is with open hands, this is the only way to receive Jesus in the manger. This is the only way to live in the way of Jesus.